this future of data podcast we'll talk to john gibbs about his journey through digital industries and we'll share some of the best practices so stay tuned Welcome to another episode of Future of Data podcast. Today we have we have with us John Gibbs. Uh, he is a chief data officer and chief data scientist at L2, a digital research, benchmarking, and advisory services company, recently acquired by Gartner Group. Prior to his time at L2, John founded and was a group uh, vice president of data science and analytics at Huge, a digital marketing agency in Brooklyn. and spent 10 years at nielsen running its digital and analytics practice so john welcome to the podcast thanks so much for having me beautiful so i think um when i was when i when i looked you up on linkedin and looking at your profile it's it's i think it's it's fabulous so very decorative on the digital analytics space and i think you guys have been uh, at least the digital industry has been the one of the first primary adopter of data analytics using data for decision making and all that fun stuff like you guys leading that that chart for quite some time so before we get into some some of the some of the meat of that love to know your journey what brought you to this industry what you do why you do and what are some of the motivators uh, motivating things and what are some of the golden nuggets you picked along the way as as you uh, grow into your career into this beautiful role <laughs> sure, sure. So, I guess we'll give you sort of the the long walk and we'll 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 see how that goes. Um so I, when I got out of graduate school, I did most of my graduate work in spatial statistics and this was just at the beginning of when the internet was starting to um become an important factor in uh communications, media, commerce, etc. so the late 90s. Um I came out of graduate school hoping to get a a great social science job. uh hoping to uh work for a non-profit uh, and I was going to go change the world. Um we changed the world in a slightly different way perhaps in digital <laughs> and not maybe in the way that I had thought initially, but uh got out of graduate school was looking for a good guy job like that and at the time um a good friend of mine was at a company called Jupiter Research which was a early research firm really focusing on sort of new internet developments. Mm. I came on there um to run their uh to work in their data group and then eventually run their data group. uh left there at a certain point went to Nielsen uh for a while um which has had its sort of interesting own up and downs with digital over the years um uh spent a little bit of time in the agency world um and then I'm now here at L2 um you know I think that the the major the one major nugget that I've learned along the way that that I would that I would share would be that if if you think about my background um you know geospatial statistics and then survey research mm-hmm. uh you two, you think about two different things that aren't necessarily what we think of as uh either large scale data or data mining type uh type practices or you think of them as relatively small data type type issues um and what i've found is that many of the skills and many of sort of the conceptual frameworks that are used in those fields are extremely useful uh to be used uh as we're thinking about the world right now. So a, a good example uh is one of the products that we run here at L2 um is a search intelligence product. It uh allows us to extract uh a great deal of uh content from Google uh and help to report and analyze the success of different types of brands uh on Google. So we ran into an issue in terms of uh a capacity issue. How many mm-hmm. keywords could we extract in a given time? 
So you know, we have a lot of different folks that are trying to think through this problem. Uh, and we came to a solution by using actual relatively straightforward sampling theory that you develop when you do sample frame development in general survey research. So we're kind of using very sort of older methods and more sort of traditional methods uh, to apply to current problems in a way that are extremely effective. And we found that many of those sort of old tools uh, can't really be thrown out. And maybe it's just me talking as an old guy, but I, uh, I, I, do, I do appreciate some of the old tools. And you know, when you read, for example, in a lot of the literature, well, we don't need probability anymore. Mm. or we don't need statistics anymore because we have such a high volume of data, th that, that seems like a, a clearly short-sighted approach to me uh, based on sort of the ways that we, the way that we have to think about, um, even on a normal level, managing data sets or analyzing different types of data sets or doing different types of predictive modeling, even on a, uh, on a temporary basis. Interesting, interesting. And, and, and thank you so much for shedding a light on that. So let's talk about L2. Like what is L2 for, for, for our audience and what do you guys do? And, 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 and if you can shed some light on that. Sure. So L2 is a digital benchmarking company. Uh, what we do is uh, we look across about 30 different verticals, and those verticals can range in size from the hair care industry uh, to restaurants to automotive uh, to different types of beauty categories to consumer electronics. And within each of those categories, we're tracking about 100 to 150 brands. And for each of those brands, we're capturing about uh, 2,500 data points per brand uh, per sort of model that we, we're building. And what we're doing is taking those different data points and aggregating them in different ways, analyzing them in different ways, and really showing which brands are most effective digitally uh, and how that's changing, improving their consumers' experience. Uh, so fundamentally, what we're doing is using these models and using the data that we have to help different types of companies understand where they're behind and what they should be doing differently in order to sort of keep up with the pack or, or exceed the best in their the best in their categories or or to learn from other categories for that matter. Interesting. So, so uh, and and what are some of some of the use cases uh, for this benchmark studies that that companies hire some, some someone like L2 for? If you, if you can if you can talk about that. Sure. So a, a very, very big part of it is uh, budget resource allocation. Okay. So if you can think about all of the different things that a brand can do digitally, right? They can they could build a new website. They could start a new marketing campaign. They could enhance their social media presence. They could put a new ESP or DMP online. There's, you know, a hundred different things you can do. Um, and it's really just helping them understand what are the priorities in their industry and where should they be focusing their resources and how should they be thinking more smartly about spending the limited number of dollars they have effectively to be able to um, uh, both gain voice in their client's mind uh, as well as sort of keep up with the Joneses in their industry. Interesting, interesting. So I, I was, actually I was talking to one of the digital, uh, from a digital industry space, some guy, I think last month, I guess. And he actually quoted something that caught my attention. So he said, Vishal, whatever money is to banker, is what data is for the for the digital industry folks. So I said, okay, <laughs> sure, like I I'll take that. That sounds, that sounds like a thing somebody might say, sure. Right, yeah. ex exactly. So I said, that, that, let's let's take that. So with with that savvy uh, sort of um, uh, industry in in data, yeah. what are some of the struggles or challenges uh, that you face? Uh, that that yeah. So I think that ultimately, when you when you look at the type of data that we have in digital, we we have. Um, it's mostly all the same pot of data, but it gets used in two functionally different ways, right? One is learning more about users, uh, and the other is optimizing the experience. And those are really the two sort of fundamental ways we think about it. And optimizing the experience can be everything from making sure the right people see the right ads, 
uh, making sure the website is designed properly, uh, making sure that your social media posts are proper, making sure that your email output is segmented, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, making sure the content is personalized where it should be. So there's all these different ways that you can use that data to make the digital experience uh, personalized. And it's something we read a lot about. Obviously, that's a big part of the way that Google and Facebook look at the world. And um, increasingly, it is the primary way in which Amazon works at the world. Um, Interesting. The other side of that is really more of the insight side of it, where like any type of business, be it a retail business or a media business or any type of marketing brand, um, you want to understand who your users are. You want to understand what are the types of messages that resonate with them. You want to understand what's going to change their behavior um, or emotions in a way that's to your benefit. Uh, and that's sort of the other side of digital data. And we've been quite effective as an industry sort of looking at both of those two different things, both together and independently. The challenge comes, and this is sort of a bit of an old saw, is that um, you can measure almost anything in digital, but almost none of it's important. Uh, mm. And that is that if you look at what marketing is traditionally supposed to do, right? Marketing is supposed to change how you feel about something, right? Marketing is supposed to change uh, emotionally how tied you are to a brand or whether or not you think a brand is an innovator or whether or not you are more likely to buy that brand if you're sort of in a lower down the funnel type position. Um, there are many parts of digital where we do a very bad job measuring and optimizing to attitude and measuring and optimizing to how marketing should really be effective. And that's one of those areas where I think there's a lot of different um, companies and a lot of different approaches that people have looked at in order to try to create those types of optimization schemas. But we really lack a good dependent variable in a lot of cases to actually optimize towards because we don't have, you know, we don't we don't have um, wires into your brain. So mm -hmm. we'll not get this, right? Um, but, you know, we're getting closer in some ways. If you take a look at, for example, the role of um, uh, unbranded search or mm -hmm. branded search so the degree to which somebody is searching for um, a specific brand with specific type of branded modifiers associated with it, that gives us a good idea about how general consumer sentiment is changing towards a brand itself. Uh, there's also types of social media scraping and di different types of text and analytics that we're employing on social media to really get an understanding of how people are talking about uh, brands in those spaces. The challenge, um, particularly in the social media space, though, uh, is that you tend to, it tends to be a U-shaped curve, right? Mm. You tend to have uh, either the complainers, the lovers, and what you don't get is a lot of the folks in the middle. And it turns out most of us are pretty much in the middle when it comes right. to brands. And so it's difficult to optimize around that. Where I think our studies have been most effective and where we've seen probably the best sort of direction uh, in terms of understanding on a more qualitative branding level uh, how people feel um, is by looking at Amazon reviews. Uh, Amazon reviews have the benefit of knowing that the user has actually bought and interacted with the product. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, and so while it doesn't give you the entire view, it doesn't give you some of the more traditional sort of upper funnel measures, it does tend to do a pretty good job giving you actionable insights uh, into user thinking and behavior um, uh, within you know, the, the largest retailer in the world. Uh, and we're hoping to start doing similar types of analytical work, uh, looking at other retailers. and, and probably focusing quite a bit on Tmall in China specifically, so we get a better sense of some of those dynamics in the Chinese market. Interesting, interesting. And I think, uh, so one uh, interesting uh, segue from for, for my previous conversation that, that I was talking to you about uh, with, with a friend, and you actually, you touched briefly on that. So he said, Vishal, as bankers have a lot of money and they can, they can screw up because they have a, a, too much of it, 
that's the same problem with with a digital marketer or or digital analyst because we we are dealing with data so we are most often stuck in analysis paralysis all the time and yeah. overdoing on like uh, overdoing many things which probably leads to no sort of uh, yield or outcome and and you touched briefly on that so what are some of some of your say best practices that that you would you would see uh, suggesting that hey you are getting into that that hole yeah i i think there's i think there's two fundamental approaches to think about and one is sort of an exploratory approach and one's a reporting approach um from an exploratory approach uh, and this is particularly at nielsen we made a a very um we had a very strong culture around hypothesis testing hmm. um and one of the best ways to avoid analysis paralysis is to uh think about the world in terms of sort of traditional scientific method and hypothesis testing uh and sometimes that type of um approach is glossed over because uh current users of data may say well i don't need to do that i have so much information to look at i don't really need to do proper hypothesis testing and what we found is that tends to lead people down all the wrong holes you need to sort of know the key questions you're asking and, and sort of how to ask an interesting question and that's the best way to really extract that content from the uh, from the data itself uh from from either an insights or an optimization standpoint the other i think key and really really important thing is um looking properly defining KPIs in businesses hmm. uh one of the one of the one of the, the things that we probably spent the most time with at huge when we were setting up analytical um engagements with uh our clients was proper KPI development and understanding sort of how you can create very 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 limited numbers of KPIs to really help steer the business and understanding what sort of your hierarchy of data is um to be able to provide actual insights rather than just being sort of buried in numbers um and you know one of my favorite one of my favorite dashboards that that I ever made for a client was an email that came once a day and it was a very large percentage it would say say 3% a giant number very large number had a green or red arrow next to it Beautiful. and a link below it that said tell me more um and that was the that was the and then the tell me more would lead to you know a, i think it was a tableau dashboard at the time uh but the idea that for the most part most of the business users that we'll work with or have traditionally worked with um really want a very high level of information hmm. and it's actually generally data practitioners who are making life more difficult that hmm. by trying to add more and more and more uh what is perceived value you're actually reducing value by creating more noise um and having a good sort of ability to edit and a good way to sort of think about how to steer your insights and your experience optimization to actual business needs is, is a very uh clear and direct way uh to minimize the amount of data noise that that you're that you're creating interesting interesting and i think your conversation so your description sort of um, reminds me of a conversation that i have one, like a couple of years ago with one of the blackberry product managers and 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 he said that uh, vishal you know what we were hitting our numbers like i am one of the best performer in the industry i'm sort of the goals that i've been given i'm just killing it but the market itself shifted underneath right and they don't have uh, their plugs on 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 those sort of those indexes which actually became the critical part of the market as as it emerged and and he said so it's 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 my marketing or digital team's fault they're not able to sense this uh, this sort of this this storm of new emerging marketplace and and it 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 just it just went into this pass and parcel sort of conversation 
but um, but I, so I think what are some of your thoughts on on and and I think as Nielsen also you must and and, and as as a, as a digital um, industry guy, every day we hear a new social network coming into the in, into play, that mm-hmm. where, where where customers are are engaging and interacting, right? So we we have this now. It's more cumbersome now than what BlackBerry faced in in, in in its early days when it was almost losing to Apple or iPhone. So, what are some of right. your suggestions on on how um, people could could tap onto these uh, emerging uh, sort of data sets and still stay stay relevant to their core? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 an interesting point. It's sort of the innovator's dilemma type type issue. Um, right. I'm pretty sure uh, BlackBerry was screwed, regardless of the type of data they had. But um, I'm not <laughs> I'm not sure there would have been a proper solution to that, uh, and I'm not sure data could have told them anything. But uh, it, it's good to think that there might have been. And I'm, right. I'm glad he blamed his digital team. That that's great. Uh, the there is the 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 right the rightest form of data. Um, is not necessarily the newest form of data, right? Mm-hmm. There are ways that we can glean content from Snapchat, or there's ways that we can glean content from other types of social sources to be able to get more information. But that's not necessarily where sort of the the, the best data in the world is, or the most insightful data in the world are. Um, in those cases, specifically, um, you know, with sort of particularly with newer social platforms, you may be using the data from those platforms to understand how to optimize the experience on those platforms themselves. So how many Instagram posts should I make per day? Uh, what should the color palette look like? Uh, what types of hashtags should I use? Uh, what should the type of um, uh, the type of content in the text that I have? How does that impact uh, how people engage with it? Uh, that that content that's all very valuable stuff to know, uh, and it's really important, particularly when you're working on an individual platform. But I, I think to your your larger point. One of the challenges with data that's siloed like that is it does a very poor job typically talking to other data sources. And so understanding the relationship, for example, of optimizing the experience on Instagram uh, does you very little good frequently knowing how uh, to to know how to uh, optimize the experience, for example, on a uh, e-commerce platform. They're, they're two wholly different things, and those two data sets are not gonna, probably not going to work together unless you've done something pretty awesome. <laughs> um, the... But what it does tell you is on an individual platform by platform basis, sort of how to work in it. And the way that I think you make the selection in terms of which of those types of data you want to use comes down to, uh, for your specific type of user, which of those platforms themselves are, are, are most important. With the understanding that there are certain platforms like Facebook, Google, and Amazon primarily that are important to everybody. Um, and that you are, that no one gets a pass on doing analytics into those three platforms uh, because they uh, change, they have all functionally and fundamentally changed their industries um, so much. And particularly Amazon, even though Amazon uh, is not, uh, is sort of thought of right now as a, uh, as a significant voice in some parts of the retail environment, uh, the impact that they're beginning to have in fashion, the impact that they're beginning to have in, have in certain types of CPG products, uh, CPG categories, is so substantial and is so nascent still that be, that um, having good intelligence and good data that you're extracting from those platforms and working with their internal data can do really is only is one of the very few ways that you can you can best understand how to functionally work with uh, work with Amazon. One of the jokes that we make around uh, the office is that the difference between uh, Amazon and any type of retailer, any type of traditional retailer, is that with a traditional retailer you have a relationship with a brand. 
uh, with Amazon, you have a relationship with an algorithm. Um, yes. And being able to make sure that you're feeding the algorithm the content it needs and understanding that algorithm well enough that you're going to be able to optimize the experience so you're winning the buy box and you're first in search and your uh, sales are growing appropriately has to do with you really understanding their data inside and out and the way their algorithms work inside and out. And there's no real shortcut to doing that. Um, it's not, you know, it's not about having dinner, great wine, and playing golf. Uh, it's about really sort of getting down to the math and understanding what's impacting um, uh, different parts of the Amazon experience for users. Interesting, interesting. I think that's uh, very well said, by the way. So um, one thing that that that, that I, I definitely am curious about uh, when when I when I was looking at your profile. So you represent global companies. You worked in in their digital team, and I think one of the thing that um, and. and digital uh, industries are suffer from is like so they so you have the similar data all across so facebook is everywhere accessible but sort the of. culture has a strong influence on decision making right yeah. so uh, a, a facebook interaction in in us might not be um, like uh, the same as the interaction in, in maybe europe or, or whatever like cultural play a very significant role in how you perceive data or how you interact with these networks and, and and get your sort of feeds so what are some of your insights on when you're analyzing for a global brand where yep. sort of yeah, every locality plays a significant role or every locality's local culture plays a significant role. And by the way, you also have a crossroad of a global co company's culture that's also like you have to maintain. So what are some of the some of the thoughts that comes to your mind when you're handling sort of those scenarios? Yeah, I, I would say there, there there's three main things. Um, uh, the first is having local feet on the ground is invaluable. Um, uh, particularly when you're analyzing data, ha understanding the cultural context behind what you're uh, what you're analyzing is critical. And trying to run o data operations from the United States or from uh, from Western Europe is just is just not really feasible for global operations. So you need to be able to have pods in the markets that you care most about. Um, that's thing one. Thing two is really understanding the regulations on the ground. Um, particularly when you look at and you could use the sort of three different markets of uh, the U.S., EU, um, and China, and understanding sort of the, the data constraints and the data differences in each of those markets and what you can and can't realistically do uh, is really important. Um, and that's something that you just kind of have to hit the books and do. Um, uh, I think it's probably been well-trod how different uh, the uh, EU use of cookies is from the way that you can use cookies and other types of uh, personal data um, in the United States. Um, but really understanding that and taking it to heart that there's some types of, for example, targeting mechanisms that just aren't feasible in Europe. Uh, and increasingly, um, uh, the EU is locking down a lot of um, personal data and sort of new and exotic ways uh, to make it more challenging to functionally use the data, use different types of data in that market. I, you know, I, I don't necessarily have a... a um, an opinion whether or not that's good or bad. I, I, I mean, I guess I do. I, I, I personally think that uh, cookies are the least of our privacy worries, and, uh, and worrying about cookies seems like a bit of an oddity to me. But that's fine. We'll let the we'll let the uh, let the lawyers do whatever the lawyers do. Um, I think the the third um, the third uh, large uh, sort of data concern that you have when you're working uh, internationally is uh, finding the right partner or the right source. Um, there's a tendency, particularly of large global countries, the companies, to try to single source on a specific data partner or a specific data source. Um, and what we've found both uh, here at L2 and historically at, at Nielsen, and as well as when I worked at NBC, uh, finding local data providers is a significantly more effective way of doing business than trying to work with um, 
you know, Kantar globally or something along those lines or some sort of massive global provider uh, because there are so many intricacies to individual markets that are really just unexpected. Um, you need to know somebody who can, you know, who really knows, who knows the space in that area specifically. So, uh, you know, a very basic example is the data partner and the, the, that we work with in China or one of the data partners we work with in China. Uh, one of the things they're best at is figuring out how to get us large volumes of data through the Chinese firewall. Nice. Uh, and that's something that they've had to learn and, exper and build experience over time. And that's not something that a global partner may have had the uh, wherewithal or sort of thinking to kind of figure that out. Interesting. I think that's that's a very very interesting point. I, I never anticipated that actually that you're right that uh, even the data provider plays a, a important role uh, to get to get the local locals of data. So I think one of the things as 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 you were describing um, uh, about about the global landscape, uh, I was thinking about the Amazon example that you gave recently about uh, you have to make a relationship with an algorithm, right? So one of the thing that um, that I uh, in in my strategy practice uh, talk a lot about is uh, doing so data science being the art uh, the science of doing business and then the business strategy is the art of do doing business so if um, the more you use data the you actually try to invite more um, science of doing business into the art of doing business mm -hmm. and that might sort of so now now the problem with algorithm in inherently is they are they are biased right so they they stack some things together and they they pretty much analyze okay this is the trend so probably this is going to go in the future too so how would and, and and it sort of circumvents again those market conditions probably or or some some sort of top-down discovery that might happen so what are some of some of your thoughts around um around the idea of that if we rely more on algorithms for for decision making then we, we may we may be losing out on the art of doing business which again is, is our intuitive cognitive abilities to sort of figure out and do things yeah yeah i mean so one of the best work experiences I ever I've ever had is I um, my sort of research partner while I was at Huge was one of our consumer experience user experience leads, uh, Sophie Kleber. She's she's fantastic, um, and Sophie and I were, were were great partners working together. One of the reasons why is uh, she is fundamentally an artist, right? Nice. This is what she does with her time, uh, and she uh, thinks like an artist. She acts like an artist. She dresses like dresses like an artist. Uh, I think like a math science guy. I dress like a math science guy. I act like <laughs> a math science guy. Um, uh, and ha when we work together, we produce some of the best work that I've ever done. Nice. Uh, and the reason why is that it's very easy for me to surround myself with, and I think this is your point, with people who think similarly to me, who have the mm -hmm. same assumptions who uh, tend to make the decisions in the same way based on what we believe to be sort of truth and data. And there is something to be said for somebody who has an entirely different background who can sort of look um, more deeply at sort of the qualitative elements associated with solving a problem and just look at the problem in a different way. Um, surrounding yourself with different types of creative thinkers is, I think, extremely valuable for people in our field and is something that is uh, frequently uh, not done. Uh, and I think is a mistake. Interesting, interesting. And I think um, so. B b by the way, well said. Um, uh, thank you for that. So I, um, now I want to spend some time about your current role. So um, you are um, chief data scientist and chief data officer in L two. What does that yep. really mean? Um, and, and what do you do? And, and if you can, if you can shed some light on that. Sure, sure. So 
the group that I run uh, at L2 is responsible, more or less, for making all the data that's in our analysis, as well as managing all of our data models. So we, we have sort of three hunks of people at L2 as a, as a company, right? We have uh, strategists who are kind of explaining to clients sort of what they should be doing with their time um, and how they should be spending their money. We have researchers who are doing sort of research into specific industries and helping to understand the trends there. And we have our, our data technology folks, which is my group. So we're responsible for m making and deploying all of the data that is used by those other two groups. Uh, we use sort of three fundamental flavors of data at L2. Um, none of it is PII, uh, personally identifiable data. All the data we look at is on a brand level. Uh, so the three types of data we look at fundamentally are uh, what we consider human collected data. So we have a, a team of hourly workers who look at websites and we have a, a data system where they can punch in um, uh, all the different features and assets that that website has on it. Uh, how, to, how can you sort search in different ways? What are the elements of the nav, et cetera? So we have that team that's entering data into sort of our, our data system. Um, that's about a third of the total data points that we're capturing for a given study. Uh, we have what we consider continuous data from a lot of our data partners, uh, which is about a third of our data. And this is with companies like uh, eDataSource, Unmetric, SimilarWeb, uh, companies who we have um, either barter or commercial relationships with, where we're acquiring their data and processing their data in different ways to use in our analysis. And then we have our own set of proprietary scrapers uh, which we're using primarily to extract content from both Amazon and Google. Um, and that's about a third of our data as, as well. Um, all, the, all three of those sort of types of data are kind of brought together into one platform and are integrated on the uh, brand level. And so any of our researchers or strategists can go in any time and look up you know, all the content and all the data that we have on a specific brand you know, up to about 3,000 3, data points that we collect around that. That then, our, that whole architecture overall also replicates uh, our digital IQ, which is sort of the core model that we use in our reporting uh, so clients can really understand how, they're, how well they're doing. And so all of that's sort of automated through the same platform. So we build, manage that platform. We do, we do all that type of fun stuff. Interesting. And, and, and how, much, how much of your role is um, in-facing vis-a-vis out-facing, uh, client-facing versus like in, internally making sure the, um, your, your benchmarking is rolling out? Uh, if you, can... you know, it's, 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 it's funny. I sp I've spent most of my career externally facing. That, that has primarily been my job and certainly was a large part of my job both at um, Nielsen and um, at Huge. My role here, though, is significantly more internally facing. Um, and that's partially because our, at this point, our data ecosystem is so complex that it really requires all of somebody's attention as well as our, the team overall to make sure things continue to work properly. Um, you know, my, my hope when I had started this job would be that, you know, within two years, and it's now been about a year and a half, uh, we'd be sort of in turn the crank mode. Um, we are not in turn the crank mode. We are, uh, we are constantly trying to fix and tweak things and improve the models that we have. And I don't, I don't imagine that changing. You know, as, as you had said before, the space overall changes so frequently. Hmm. Uh, and the types of data that we're working with change so frequently that you know every month or two months we may be looking at a new data source that we want to onboard and bring into our architecture and bring into our overall analytical uh, platform and models. And all of that takes time and energy and a significant amount of thoughtfulness. I've also found that um, 
that people who are 25 have significantly uh, more time and energy and enjoyment out of talking to clients than I do at this point. So I'll, I'll leave it to them as well, too. <laughs> Interesting. So uh, I, I think, uh, again, you raise a very good point about um, uh, emerging data sources and there are a lot of, uh, it, it, it's, it's coming uh, every new day. We have new sources coming, new source of data coming. How do you recruit um, uh, these channels or, or sources? Like how do you, what are some of the ways to qualify, um, say a source? You say, okay, maybe Instagram. So now let's start monitoring Instagram as like, what, what, what's what the process? If you can walk us through that, will be, that'll be really amazing. Sure, sure. So the first, the first sort of step in the process is, uh, is there, is, is the basic question, is there a platform that we either do not have enough information coverage on uh, but we have some data on, or similarly, is there a new platform out there that we have no information coverage on? Uh, and if either of the answer to either of those things is true, then we need to figure out how to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. So the, the next question is, um, uh, should we acquire the data? Uh, should we make the data on our own, uh, which we can do in a lot of cases, or should we model the data based on other data sources that we have presently? Um, that sort of, uh, Build versus kind of build versus buy uh, decision um, is sort of that is sort of that next phase. Um, and when we are in the build versus kind of build sort of part of that decision tree, uh, what we tend to look for is what's the feasibility uh, of us actually building it uh, and doing a good job at it. And two, is this data set that we're looking for um, something that's more or less a commodity now? So uh, an example of that would be initially when I started working here, uh, we scraped all of our own Facebook and Twitter data, right? We had we had scrapers that, that, that were doing that work. Uh, relatively shortly thereafter, we actually shut down that scraper part of our business and we onboarded a partner. Uh, the reason we onboarded a partner is because they could do it faster, cheaper, uh, all that other stuff. And it's not, you know, having scrapers is not a core part of our business. It just happened right. to be the way that we were getting the data. Uh, so in that case, we onboarded a partner. Um, so if, as we're going through that process, the next sort of phase after that is, you know, if we're thinking about do we want to onboard a partner, uh, what we'll typically look at is a number of uh, different players in the market, uh, what their cost structure is, what their availability is, and all that type of fun stuff. And then we're typically balancing out um, the combination of functionality, quality, and price um, in terms of how we assess those different types of data sources. Um, functionality is obviously really important. Embedded um, in functionality, uh, to some degree, is uh, is quality as well. Uh, quality is something that we uh, have a variety of different ways that we judge, and we have a pretty um, rigorous scoring rubric that we put together in terms of how we measure the quality of a data source. Uh, everything from its outage time uh, to how well it connects to manual data to uh, how much of the data they have to model and what's the error rates associated with the models that they have in place. And then price is price. Um, hmm. You know, it, it's a, it has to be part of the factor where part of the way that we factor in the data uh, and that part of the business. We are not a large company. We, we have about 300 clients. We have about 200 employees. Um, and so we're not going to go out and spend, you know, a half a million dollars on a data source. We need to sort of figure out a way to get it in a cost-effective way that's not going um, to hurt sort of our, our bottom line or our top line. Interesting. Um, I think, uh, so great, great, great for sharing that. So um, let's talk about 
something on on the on the modeling end so okay so now you recruited a data source you said okay and you found a partner and and, and now it's feeding in so what are what so how do you recruit a a new data source from the from the algorithms point of view like do you have something like an ontology that sort of that you just create and say okay um i know how to talk to and and i have like bunch of like what are some of the thoughts like how do you integrate uh, a new source into your existing algorithm i said yeah so i uh, what we what we do generally is we have a pretty defined structure uh that we know will work within our overall architecture so what we'll typically do is um build a more or less build an etl layer uh in between the data partner and ourselves so we'll onboard the the data partner's sort of raw data through an api or something along those lines however they choose to get it to us uh and then using a relatively standardized etling system that we've built in house we can then transform that data into a way in which it will uh work with the rest of our our data set so um the way our data is fundamentally architected is that we use a um a concept called a resource as our uh, as sort of the unit of measurement and in this case what a resource is is any definable asset that a brand has that's trackable and uniquely identifiable. So, the example of that would be the URL of a website, the sender address from a uh an email account uh or a social handle, right? Those are those are unique variables. Um and so what we'll do then is basically make that basically key to that variable and transform the data so it matches underneath that and then it can be architected um into the overall system. our data system overall is has a relatively loose structure inside of it uh the users themselves the analysts or the researchers uh create the concept of a brand by aggregating those resources together so they will then say uh this url that we're tracking this social handle they belong to the concept of the brand in the way that i want to measure it right now for the piece of the research that i'm doing uh initially we had tried to build something that was a much harder taxonomy and a much more highly defined taxonomy Uh, and what we found was that because of the diversity in terms of the way that we look at categories, uh, that wasn't going to work. You take a brand, for example, like Estee Lauder. Estee Lauder may have 30 different email accounts, 50 different websites, uh, 20 different social handles, etc. And if, for example, we only wanted to look at the hair care section, in most cases, the researcher who is following hair care uh, will know the proper resources to aggregate together. And so we. we generally use that sort of user defined taxonomy as a way that we sort of structure our internal architecture so when we're processing data it's really making sure that it fits those standards interesting i think that's um uh, well said so there was the there was a guy um, from boston uh, david rose so um he he's he's working on a company called data i think he said the same thing that um um the classifier pretty much many time the classifier dictates uh, the clients dictate the classifiers so if yeah. clients so use they come with the use case they say okay i, I want to monitor say just just a beer and how, and where and people are enjoying their beer or something so we just we'll start from there and then and then sort of we just instead of going and and creating a fire hose and sort of heading a lot of use cases up front we we'll let the client and include those things so i think thank you so much for sharing that by the way so yeah. now yeah sorry. sorry just to push on that point one a uh, little bit more um i do think that one of the challenges that we have with this approach and something that is probably worth knowing um when when others go down this path is you do at a certain point run into the problem that you have for example when you have um uh a content management system that has an unending list of tags associated with it if you let user if you let users define every taxonomy mm. end up with just a, a nightmare of a governance problem 
Uh, and so we do try to we do try to walk that line. Um, and part of that is that when we are building our classifiers, we do build a relatively defined classifier set that's associated with those resources. So there's only so many things you can assign to a specific resource, but and the user can pull from those. So it's not a they don't have an unlimited ability to do anything because that just leads to chaos. And particularly if we want to try to con uh, you know control the consistency of our research overall that we're presenting to our clients, making sure there is some controlled vocabulary that we're using is really is really important. Uh, and that we're managing the methodology properly. Interesting, interesting. And, at, and now let's talk about uh, um, talk about your your leadership style, if at all. So, mm -hmm. if suppose you say you take a new job, right? So, and you expect, uh, say, a data science team to do be something. So, what are some of the expectations that 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 you just come pre-biased with? Say, I expect this uh, this data science to be like this. So, what would that be? If you can share, that will be helpful. Yeah, I, I, um, I don't know if this is a leadership style thing, but it, it's definitely the way that I think about employees when I when I tend to hire. Um, I tend to um, I tend to bucket data scientists into one of three types, um, and you can potentially I, I've worked with people, and there are people on my team that fill multiple ones of these buckets. But there, to me, there's sort of three primary uh, three primary elements that I look for. One um, is the is sort of just straight up. Um, data engineering, data management, data architecture skills. Um, and I found that typically, and, and also coding skills associated with that, so being, uh, being a, a top-shelf Python developer or something along those lines, um, I found that those people who are particularly good in that area uh, that I've been able to hire at the rate that I want to be able to hire people at tend to be different than the other two types, uh, distinctly different. And that's okay. I don't necessarily need a unicorn. I don't necessarily need somebody who can do all three of the things. Um, the second thing is the ability to actually extract um, unstructured data and process unstructured data in smart ways, and not necessarily do the analysis on the data itself, but understand really fundamentally how to work with unstructured data and be able to build that into um, either build the models or build the processes or the extractions that will allow other people to use it properly. And the last are people who are much more analytically driven or analytically bent. And those are folks that may have a more traditional um, statistical background, have much more of a uh, traditional um, data modeling background, uh, segmentation background, et cetera. Uh, what I've generally found is that for all three of those types of people, just because as data scientists continue to grow as a field, each of those things have gotten a little bit easier. And so you see uh, a more of a blending of all three of those skill sets. But those are the three areas that I try to focus on. Um, my predilection, just because of my background, is to the third. And so I try to make sure, particularly on the first two, that I hire uh, and have strong leaders uh, in those areas, places where I can really, um, where I can really rely on people. Um, the current head of my data engineering team is uh, Raj is awesome, and I uh, nobody can have him. He's the best. Um, so uh, we, uh, you know, we just want to make sure that we have really great, strong people in those places. So honestly, if there's, you know, if we have to figure out how to restructure our AWS relationships or how we want to restructure the databases and how much needs to be on Redshift versus uh, Postgres, there's somebody who I can trust to make those decisions, and it's not going to blow up on me. Interesting, interesting, and I think um, from 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 my conversation with a bunch of leaders uh, so far, I think I found they're like they're they're, they're two primary uh, sort of uh, uh, 
uh, trains of thoughts. So one is uh, someone who says, okay, I believe in more of a council-like structure. So I'll go in and I'll start creating councils with different business groups and say, okay, get me one of those guys, sort of whatever, right? And and the, and the other is, okay, I'll pretty much start working on a very tiny use case. I'll recruit my, my, my magic uh, one or two or threes, right. threesies, and start working and start working my way up and then sort of keep keep expanding and, 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 and delivering and kind of creating maybe both of the ways you're getting center of excellence in a way. But yeah. so which, which would, which would, which uh, option would you side with and why if that, that'll be helpful? Yeah. And I think this, this probably comes from my background being more client facing is that my, um, I feel like the most effective way is to win the small battles and build up to the bigger ones. Um, so to find a specific use case that you think you can kill, uh, do a great job on, win there, mm-hmm. and that just continues to build sort of your internal support, uh, build, build additional resources, uh, build uh, new ways of you looking at the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and once you've sort of done that, you can, you've typically proven to either your boss or your boss's boss or the CFO or whomever that um, you can that you can be effective, and so more things start coming to you. And there's a certain point that I've reached in most of my roles, where you begin to notice that the demand is outstripping your capacity, mm-hmm. um, and that's sort of when that that's when things are good, right? Yes, yes, I mean, it's right. kind of painful at the moment, but it's when you can go back to the CFO and say, look, we're actually getting some great success here. We've had, you know, we're hitting our we're hitting our KPIs. We have very happy internal clients. Let's look at trying to expand the program into these new different types of use cases. If you try to be all things to all people, what you tend to end up doing is building, you know, a giant data lake or something like that that doesn't have a specific use case and you don't end up getting the value you want to out of it. Um, and I think then you end up getting people who are pretty mad at you. Interesting, interesting. So um, let's let's talk about um, your magic hire, right? So if suppose you you join a company and and you would to hire just one guy to help you with or whatever. So what what some are some of the traits um, that you think this can? And I think you you, you sort of you shared a, a, yeah. a tad bit of it in, in your previous responses. But what would that if you can sort of uh, quantify and qualify that candidate? I think that that will be helpful. Yeah, I think at this point in my career, my magic hire is probably a very, very, very strong data engineer who, one, has interest in the business that we're working in. And that's a, sometimes hard to find, actually. You can find great data engineers who don't particularly care about the specific business. If they don't care about the business, they're not going to be effective. Um, so uh, finding a, a very strong data engineer who, who cares about the business and also is analytically minded. They don't need to necessarily have analytical skills. Um, that isn't necessarily a requirement. But they understand uh, analytical use cases, and they understand why you would want things built in a specific way. And that's you know building a data engineer who's looking at the world the way I have to look at the world from a sort of a research and analytics standpoint versus a data engineer who's going to, for example, be sitting behind a consumer-facing application are two different are two totally different ways of looking at the world. And making sure the person has sort of that 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 proper um, uh, that that proper uh, sort of view. Uh, I think it's really important. The sort of second magic hire that I typically make is somebody who um, has, who's typically right out of school, um, has a social science background, um, and some good strong data skills, who can, who's highly intellectually curious and willing to work really, really hard in order to 
really get great analyses out of uh, out of the data that we have. And what I found is that I, I typically need that person to just kind of be the Robin to my, to my Batman, um, <laughs> it, because you know you can't do everything on your own. And having somebody who you can you can delegate to, having somebody you can bounce ideas off of, um, and, and somebody wear the red costume is always good. Interesting. I think that's that's that, that that's well said. So um, let's let now let's talk about um, so a, a dissimilar industry. So say uh, maybe manufacturing or, or maybe industrial internet or whatever. Um, what are some of the some of the um, best practices or like two three um, uh, sort of best practices that you could suggest to someone leading their data science team uh, in sort of in in a very I don't call it a hostile environment, but very close to that. We're sort of uh, the idea of uh, data-driven is still very far, yeah. and sort of proving anything, and, and then from that they have to now build this this culture up, and then explain people about what the hell is going on. What are some other things you could suggest to those guys? Yeah, and so there is one area that I think is interesting here, and it's an area that I have sort of specific interest in. I, uh, over the past year or two, I've become really, really, really interested in HR analytics. Um, uh, I think it's sort of a, a really interesting growth space. Um, there's, I think there's a lot of opportunities uh, for different types of analytical applications in HR. Um, it's also very under-leveraged. Uh, there isn't a lot of work there. Um, there are some software packages. They're not great. Uh, there are some people who are experts. They tend not to be great either. And as a, not as necessarily as an industry, but as sort of a horizontal practice within most businesses, it tends to be sort of the um, bastion of humanity, and I guess it's the nature of what they do for a living, right? That they, they have to be the nice guy, they have to be the, the person who can kind of think through things like that. Um, and, you know, it's one of the one of the things that I would recommend to folks that really want to try to implement, say, HR analytical systems, um, is it's another one of those scenarios about think about what the dependent variable should be. In HR, it's a particularly difficult problem. Um, because you know we have ideas about employee retention that are important. We have ideas about employee satisfaction that are, that are important. We have uh, salary management that are important, all these different types of things. Uh, so really understanding how do you optimize to those things. And some of the interesting sort of applications that I've seen out there right now um, are a couple of different companies that are doing um, very, very, very high velocity um, qualitative surveys like one question qualitative surveys that are either being pushed through Slack or being pushed through an email channel at the company, uh, allowing you to create sort of a 360 view of an employee. And then as that 360 view of the employee changes over time, you can take a look at what the androgynous factors are that are actually changing that and understand how to change those things independently. And that's a, a place where that approach seems particularly good for HR uh, one, because it tends to be relatively humanistic and human-centered, uh, which is what that area is overall. Uh, and two, it tends to use a lot of the data they may already have around through PeopleSoft or SAP or whatever other system they're using. Um, and, and, and I think that's a case where you take sort of the weakness the specific industry may have, this idea that it needs to be human-centric and somewhat qualitative and soft to a certain degree, and use it as a real advantage in terms of the way that you can um, uh, advance an analytical practice facing in that area. Uh, I know Amazon's done some fair work internally in this. Google's done some pretty famous uh, work internally um, with their people management systems uh, using a very data-driven approach. And I think both of their approaches have some weaknesses. Um, and so I'm interested to see sort of what comes next in that field. Uh, I, I think there's going to be, I think that's the, that's the next big one. Interesting. 
I think uh, so you you raised an interesting point. Um, survey. So I I used to I used to own a company um, on on customer customer experience. So I think survey was pretty much my uh, day in and day out job a uh, couple of couple of years back. So I and I always used to sort of wonder when would we get to a stage when uh, it's it's a serverless um, um, times. What what are some of your thoughts on? Um, because now we have data from like we have social interactions, we have data, we have sort of these transactional uh, sort of interactions, and we have this relational sort of. Um, so, what do you think? Like, how far are we or from from when we don't have to do survey anymore? Yeah, I'm not sure. Well, I'm not sure we should ever necessarily abandon surveys as an approach. Um, there, you know, as as I've explained to folks on my team, surveys inherently aren't bad. Um, cheap surveys are though. Mm. Um, and uh, the part of the problem is the uh, market research industry overall is kind of settled that they're willing to give up quality for cost. Um, and so because of that, you tend to have pretty shoddy surveys that come out of much of the market research industry right now. Um, I, I think the survey approach, particularly for something like JAR, like what we're talking about, or even user experiences is, is, is incredibly important because there's no way to know those things otherwise. I do think there are other approaches that are sort of gaining speed. Um, being able to, for example, extract data from Slack for internal users, I think is interesting, as long mm. as you're not going to creep your internal users out too much. Um, being able to um, uh, be able to do more user tracking on the site, uh, looking at um, different types of click paths, et cetera, looking at different types of qualitative responses, part of that is is really interesting. But uh, you know, I'm not sure we'll ever necessarily be able to abandon it, nor should we want to. Uh, I do think that we, as uh, if if one is a practitioner of survey research or if one uses surveys as part of their job, um, understanding uh, what you're giving up through cheap instruments is super important. Um, and I'm afraid that's not done nearly enough. Interesting, interesting. Good point, by the way. So, so let's let's talk about. I think um, um, we are almost hitting our, to our mark at the end. And thank you so much for for for, for sort of lending us your your thoughts here. So one thing I definitely want to understand from you is the future of data in in digital industries. Like, what do you think, or, or future of data analytics in and like, where do you see uh, the capabilities heading to, uh, or or like, what would you what would you imagine happening maybe one year, two year, or five year down the line that that you you're seeing? Yeah, I, I think the primary push, and I and I'm sure I'm not the only one who's saying this, is the continued. Um, uh, democratization and ease of democratization of data uh, as being sort of a, a, a core element. Um, low cost, relatively flexible BI platforms that run off of well-structured, uh, well-documented, uh, known data platforms um, are becoming cheaper and more abundant, particularly if you're using um, well-known data sources, if you're using Google Analytics, if you're using Salesforce, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Most of the existing uh, BI platforms out there can deal with that data quite easily. Um, and because of that, I think we're going to continue to see a push down and a push out of uh, analytics and BI and data in general to sort of the farthest reaches of the business and a decentralization of um, uh, an analytics practice per se inside of a business. I don't think this diminishes the need for having a CDO, obviously, because if we did, I'd mm. be talking myself out of a job. But uh, what I do think is that the role becomes some degree less of an analytical job and becomes much more of a governance job. Um, mm. And that's um, that's sort of the other second trend. And again, I, I guess what's sort of old is new again, is that just if we're continuing to democratize 
data the way that we say we want to, and we have these cheaper platforms that are distributing the content for us, uh, we do need to have a very, very, very strong governance layer. Um, and that's something that um, you know probably outside of banking and some parts of retail still don't really exist. And maybe healthcare, healthcare too. Interesting. So um, well said. And again, thank you so much, John. I think it was it was a treat talking to you and i think you give okay. us a, a, a very great perspective on 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 your industry and sort of being thank you so much for being very candid and and sharing with our community some of those best practices that probably the future leader could could sort of uh, use and and take to to make their their job more glorious like yours <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I like thank you so can i just put glorious on my business card now that would be i great. i know this is like chief cgo <laughs> like, like whatever so Yes, I think I, I I want to do that. So, by the way, so yes, thank you so much, thank and uh, hope to uh, have you back sometime later discussing how the journey is taking you and and sort of sharing with us your story. That will be fascinating. Okay. Sounds great. Uh, I thought I was sick of home, but actually I was homesick. Never really knew that I would have to grow up so quick. I'm so uncomfortable, don't know anybody here. Just a couple dudes that I met once, that's it. Then I go into the booth feeling nervous. Got butterflies in my stomach like I'm so worthless. Is the mic on? I don't know how to work this. Inside I'm breaking down, I hope I'm not up on a certain...